0: Welcome to the Trinity Grace Church Tribeca podcast. At Trinity Grace Church, our mission is to help New Yorkers grow in love by practicing the way of Jesus for the good of our city. If you're interested in Trinity Grace Church Tribeca, check out our website at tgctribeca.com where you can learn more about us and learn about ways that you can help support our church and this podcast. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook to see and hear what's going on in our community. Thank you for joining us today and welcome, grace and peace to you. When Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, who was being carefully watched. When he noticed how the guests picked the place of honor at the table, he told them this parable: When somebody invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may be invited. If so, the host who invited you, um, who invited you both, will come to you and say, "Give this person your seat." Then, humiliated you will have to take the least important seat. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say, friend, move up to a better place. Then you'll be honored in the presence of, of the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. All those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then Jesus said to his to his hosts, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or your sisters, or your relatives or rich neighbors, If you do, they may invite you back, and then so you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. The Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ.
1: We stand for the gospel readings because uh, in in the gospel stories, we think something profound and special is happening that we sort of want to bring our bodies into alignment with the gravity of uh, the intent which we read to the text. And part of that intent includes a practice which we do each week, which is uh, a moment of silence where we bring our own attentiveness and presence to the moment. And uh, with all the distractions from the week behind you, we try to put those behind us, uh, acknowledge them but put them behind us, and open ourselves to this moment, to God, to each other, um, and we come as, as we fully are, um, whatever that looks like for you. Of course, it's always complicated. Some of you come in with lots of doubts, some of you come in with an open heart, lots of faith, and uh, you're probably all somewhere in between. And we just bring our full selves. Everyone here is welcome and loved, and let's just be together putting this story together. Um, so just a moment of quiet to open your heart as best as you know. God, in the face of our lives, Gen, gen, uh, generally, prompt a contraction of the heart, sort of shriveling or shrinking in fear with an intent to protect ourselves in the face of the threat. We pray for the courage of the open heart that you would expand the opening within us that makes love possible, that makes trust possible, that makes vulnerability possible that makes change possible. Bring that work a little further along in each of our lives this morning, we pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So there is um, there's a, a bit of a song that i want to show you this morning on the screen. And by the screen, I mean the wall. Uh, and it's by Joseph Byrd, and Joseph Byrd was reflecting on the life and teaching of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a sort of resistant, uh, theological resistant, pastoral, resistant in the Nazi regime uh, during World War II. And this is how the song goes, or how it ends. Each day tells the other, my life is but a journey to great and endless life. Oh, sweetness of eternity. May my heart grow to love thee. My home is not in this time's strife. And that little phrase to zero in on as we begin to reflect on this story. My, my home is not in this time's strife. Jesus has this little mention at the end of this story of uh, another age, uh, a kind of repayment or a kind of reward that happens at another time. And in the Jewish imagination, there were these like two ages that were seen to be in consecutive order. Um, visually, it kind of looked like this. We've got this age, and then we've got, afterwards, the age to come. And in the Jewish imagination, uh, there was a general acceptance that this age is hard, this age is um, difficult, it's marred by evil and injustice and corruption and fear, and um, there was this sense of, There there will be an age to come that's good and that's bright and that's beautiful, and we have simply to wait for it, uh, to pray for it, and uh, in their imagination, it would be the work of the Messiah, the Anointed One, Um, in their mind, a political leader, a king, who would usher that in. But then with Jesus, you have a shift happening in the imagination. And that's what I love about that line of, of this time's strife. Because a lot of us think about strife uh, as something in this world and then what God's into is some other world, some other place. But that's not the Jewish imagination. This place is the only place. God's created world is the only world. Heaven is the dimension in which God resides. It's sort of the underpinning of this world, the, the spirituality of this world. And yet when we think of uh, what God is doing in the world, we often think terms of place, not time. And what Jesus did is he he showed that there's actually an overlap of the ages taking place. That though this age is corrupt, and though this age is plagued by injustice and violence and evil, um, rooted in fear and insecurity, that there is another force that is crashing into the world. And this is what Jesus would have called the kingdom of God. It's what Jesus would have called the dream, uh, or what we might paraphrase as the dream of God. Um, And it's a new way of being human. This is what Jesus is showing us, teaching us, casting vision for. It's a new way to be human. And so what Jesus does at this moment is he's showing up to a party. And there's this fascinating um, theme in the Bible that we see played out in Jesus' life. And that is the power of the table. Um, Jesus is showing a new way to be human, and at the center of that new way to be human is the power of the table. Um, in in uh, the Hebrew Bible, uh, the meal is a really important thing, even from moment one. Um, this teaching about the Sabbath, which is the occasion in which Jesus has this encounter. The Sabbath, a day of rest, a day when we could... Uh, it, it's not the beginning of a week It is the culmination of a week uh, In the creation poem uh, God makes the world And uh, everything has its sort of uh, Place and role And beauty and it's all good And then after the whole thing Is finished so to speak There is a day of rest And it, it brings all of the good Creation to completion it's, it's a moment to pause and enjoy What is good and Israel, as a practice, had a weekly rhythm of Sabbath, of creating space, of, in a, in a stubborn, persistent way, saying, this space is devoted, it's, it's spoken for us. This is gonna be the time when we don't let the pressures and the uh, anxieties of empire and our industries, and the pressure to produce and work, we don't let that creep into our life. We reconnect with joy, we reconnect with the beauty and the goodness of our world and it was all kicked off with a meal. And here Jesus is, on one Sabbath, going to someone's house. It was the house of a prominent Pharisee. Pharisees were pop religious leaders. And he was being carefully watched. All the eyes were on him, because Jesus had a sort of transgressive teaching, a transgressive practice, that was causing a big stir. And when they noticed, when, when Jesus noticed, how the guests, at this Sabbath meal, this whole practice rooted around a table that was designed to undo our competitiveness, to undo our violence, to undo our jealousy and our rivalry. And at that same meal, when he noticed how the guests were picking place of honor, he told him a story. Jesus, in this moment, recognizes the power of the table. And he also is seeing at the same moment that this, the practice that was supposed to dial them into the power of the table and tap into that power was being completely misunderstood and lost. And so he tells the story. And it, it's powerful for me because Jesus does two things in this story. First of all, the text tells us, before he tells the story, he sees something. What does Jesus see? Jesus sees the Sabbath become competitive, which is egregious. Jesus sees jockeying, he sees rivalry, he sees this competitive fervor to one-up the neighbor. He sees an insecurity that's grasping for status, grasping for power. And it prompts us to ask the same question when we reflect on where we are right now in life. What do we see at work as you reflect on your work culture and the things that that draws out of you? What do you see? What do you notice? What do you pay attention to? When you're at meals with friends, or with clients, or if you're in the midst of that sort of networking culture of New York, what do you notice about yourself? What fears are pricked or stirred? What anxieties are under the surface? And how do you find yourself behaving in order to get ahead, in order to um, the ladder in order to present oneself with honor? In your friendship circles and dynamics, where do you see this happening? In social media, how do you find yourself posturing or responding? These are the kind of questions that this story prompts, because they are the kinds of dynamics Jesus can see. And for many of us, we, we, we take that We take that way of being and seeing in the world for granted, and it's just something we participate in without much critical reflection. But the story of Jesus always prompts us to critical reflection. And so this morning, as a practice, I want you to consider the spaces in which you exist in New York. And what that draws out of you. What it fosters. Can you see that current? Can you see the current of envy? Can you see the current of jealousy? and of Can you see the insecure center that causes us to grab and jockey for that status? And can you see that impulse, which basically draws its whole imaginary world from a scarcity mindset? It sees that the world as basically not having enough. And so we really do need to fight for what could be ours. Otherwise we won't have it. Jesus sees it, so he tells this story, and the story has a twofold invitation. Uh, on the one hand, he says, stop it. That's my paraphrase. And on the other hand, he says, he invites them to take up something positive, a practice that's good, that's beautiful, that, that is a resistance to that force in the world. So first, stop it. All right, He says, stop pushing up, stop making peace with the exclusions that we find uh, necessary. And specifically what he says to them is, When you're invited to a wedding feast, don't take the place of honor for a person more distinguished than you might have been invited. And if so, the host, I'm sorry, the the host who invited both of you will come and say, Will you give this person your seat? Jesus is looking out for you in this advice. Um, Then, humiliated, you'll have to take the least important place. But when you're invited, take the lowest place so that. When your host comes, he'll say, Friend, move up to the better place. And then you'll be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So, what I want you to see here is to sort of put behind what seems to be like Emily Post rules of etiquette for dinner parties and see an important truth in what Jesus is asserting. What causes strife in our relationships is the way in which we catch our desires from each other. We sort of pick them up by osmosis. And that brings us into rivalry. I want what you want. What you want seems very appealing. And now we find ourselves competing. We're constantly playing the game of being uh, of one-upping each other. And following Christ's means learning to unhook ourselves, to sort of detach ourselves from rivalry and from the desires that bring us into rivalry. And one of the most important desires involved in all the ways in which we seek honor in this life, he knows that status and honor is one of our big preoccupations. And so a conscious unhooking, a conscious detachment is is a crucial step in becoming fully this new way of being human Jesus is introducing. And so Jesus comes to bring us, instead of that scarcity, that empty center that is looking for the the latter crime, he comes to bring a recognition of an unconditional love. The sense that that we are loved for who we are, as we are, and that's enough. That we are welcomed and all the status and the honor that we need, we have in the presence of our Creator. And we can recognize and reinforce in our neighbor. That's the power of the church community. The power of the church is that we take this vision that Jesus embodied and then and taught, and we 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 fill it out, and we express it. and share it with each other. We remind each other. This is you're not this insecure hollow center that needs to stuff it with this, all the status and the power and uh, the honor that the city can offer. you. But instead, you're a human being created by God, loved by God. And when we're treated that way and we treat each other that way, we start to taste and sense God's posture toward us. And we start to see that another world is possible. Jesus says, you show up in a place like that, like immediately see what's happening and untether from it. Unhook yourself from that ladder and just start at the bottom. Be content at the bottom. And when you're content with the bottom, who knows? You might be lifted up, and that's all fine and good. But it sort of relativizes that, that strong current of having to fight for your place, fight for your status, fight for your name getting out there. There's an ease with which Jesus invites us to live our lives. a sort of ease with ourselves that's so hard to come by because we're so convinced at our core that there's not enough, that life is scary, that we're not enough. We need to compensate for that. Jesus doesn't just say unlook or detach. Jesus gives them a positive practice. And I find in my own life, detachment isn't always enough. Um, That's, you know, the season of Lent, when I like abstain from things or fast from things, I know in my own experience if I don't replace that thing with something else, then I just become this miserable person. (laughs) And all I do is think about the things I'm missing out on. And Jesus knows that to unhook yourself from the whole status-grab game that is just the norm of our society. We have to replace it with something else that fuels our imagination, that infuses our heart with a sense of wonder and hope and beauty and feeds the soul rather than leaving it malnourished in the face of a banquet that seems so delightful. And so this practice involves making a place. Jesus teaches explicitly here. When you give a luncheon, Or a dinner. Don't invite your friends, your brothers, your sisters, relatives, rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you'll be repaid. This is crucial. That phrase, "you will be repaid." Jesus knows how the game works. That there is a in networking culture. There's a sort of give and take. There's a reciprocity that we kind of count on, and it's almost this um, unspoken math equation of social networking give a little bit here, and they kind of owe me a little bit, and I can call on that favor when the time comes. And we do that. We offer favors, we show up for people, we serve people, we take the things that we love, or the access that we have, and we offer it to others as a currency in order to get something else down the road. And it's that sort of networking culture that Jesus is resisting with this teaching. He's saying that the whole way of relating dehumanizes each other. It dehumanizes us. We begin to treat people as objects that help us with personal advancement rather than seeing human beings as having inherent worth and dignity and worth, love for their own sake and for themselves independent of how it advances our interests. He kind of takes that mute math that we often don't hear or pay attention to and he brings it to the surface and he says here's what you can do. You can cancel that sort of whole way of looking at the world out by transgressing and transgressing it with intent. And so his instruction is, when you give a banquet, invite the poor, invite the crippled, invite the lame and the blind, and you will be blessed. And although they cannot repay you, and I love that, although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. And so what is Jesus doing here? Jesus is saying every table should have a space, it should have a place, that we should create space for someone else. Uh, There there are a lot of practices like when people meet in the name of Jesus to have the empty chair as a visual reminder that there's someone here that is rejected, that's on the outside, that's been marginalized, that has been pushed out, that, that belongs, and we need to remember that spirit of inclusion. In the way of the teaching of Jesus. It's a way of saying, how can we make space in our lives? How can we make space at our tables for people who transgress even our own instincts? you have room at your table, you conservatives, for people who transgress your conservative instincts? You progressives. Do you have room at your table for your conservative neighbor who transgresses your progressive instincts? And we could go on and on with various identities. And we could say, do you have space at your table? Is there a chair open? Is someone welcome who transgresses your instincts? Who cannot repay you? Who doesn't advance your status? Who doesn't advance your sense of purpose and calling in the world? We have no sense of recompense. Can you hold space for that person? Now Jesus is teaching us. Remember, a new way to be human, and this is so countercultural, and it's counterintuitive, and it's like, oh, that's so difficult to do. Can you make room for your, at the table for your neighbor? Now, I want to tell a few stories because this is like gets worked out in the stories of our lives. The first one I want to tell you is a story about Tony Campolo, who is a, an author and a, a preacher. Who tells a true story about when he was traveling? Uh, he was in a different time zone and he found himself up late at night. And so he went to this diner in the early hours of the morning, and there were um, what he, he gathered to be prostitutes sitting behind him. And they were he was overhearing their conversation, and one of them was saying it's my birthday, um, and the other one was sort of like poking fun at her and saying like, well, what do you want me to do? Like get you a cake? And she was like, chill out like that. I just wanted you to know it's my birthday. Like, I don't need a birthday party or anything. In fact, I've never had a birthday party. And Tony Campola heard that little statement. I guess after the ladies had left, he walked up to the, the guy who right ran the diner, and he said, uh, are they regulars? And the guy said, yeah, they're here almost every night. And so Tony became a sort of co-conspirator for a birthday party with the diner's owner. And they planned and they kind of got the staff involved and the next night, uh, this woman shows up at 3 in the morning and the diner is filled with balloons and confetti and there's a huge cake and everyone sings happy birthday and she just begins to weep. And when they give her the the knife to cut the cake, she's resistant. She doesn't want to cut the cake. She she asks to take it home with her, to remember it, to sort of hold the moment because it was so special. And that evening, they sort of found out the guy was a pastor because he's like, I'd like to pray for you guys, which is the signal that this is probably a pastor. <laughs> and uh, and so he offers to pray. And um, as they're praying, the guy uh, who owns the shop was like, oh, so you're, you're a preacher. He's like, what kind of church are you with? Like, who are you credentialed with? And he says, I'm a part of a church that throws parties at 3 a.m. for prostitutes. The guy said, I think I'd like to be a part of the church like that. And the truth is, we all want to be a part of the church like that. We all want to become the church that's like that. But we get preoccupied with the game, with the status grab, with all the demands on our time that seem so necessary and so inevitable, and they just have our imagination in a trap, and we can't see outside of it. These little bursts of surprise and joy and wonder and love and inclusion that's possible when we take Jesus' Teaching and love seriously, when we, not just take it seriously, but when we experience it ourselves and the joy of it. There was a, a moment I was so inspired by this church when we decided we wanted to come alongside Murray Bertram High School, which is downtown. It's the lowest performing high school in Manhattan. And there were several in our congregation who had a heart for that and who were passionate about that. And so I called up the principal, we got a meeting, and I started hearing the story of that school and how it used to be one of the beacons in Manhattan for for education. It was one of the big sort of uh, uh, complex schools that had the big sports programs, and it had uh, an emphasis for women in business in the 70s, which was uh, a big deal in in Manhattan. And there were lots of beautiful life, and then all of a sudden, there was this gradual decay. And year by year, uh, the demographics started to shift, policies shift that affected that, uh, teachers became more and more disenchanted, less rewarded, the student body started to whittle down, to the point today when it was the lowest performing high school in Manhattan, with riots, it was known for its riots in the hallways, and here it is in our backyard in Tribeca. And one of the parishioners in our church said, uh, you know what we should do? They worked in education and had a sense of like how things work, and I said, this is a really under-rewarded culture, like for the faculty, for the staff, people who are fighting upstream, to to hold space for these students, to care for them, to teach them, to show them that they're valued. No one rewards them. We have award shows for all the things our culture celebrates. We spend millions of dollars celebrating industries and industry leaders and performers that we value. But there's no award show for teachers on television. We all celebrate and have red carpets what if we could step in and infuse a little bit of appreciation and recognition, a way to say, we see what you're doing. And so we threw a big party. And in fact, when Rosario was there playing a little guitar, remember, at Sarah Beth's. We rented out the party space at Sarah Beth's. We invited the whole faculty out for a really nice dinner. And one by one, we just said, we see you. We know this is hard. And we just want you to know there's like people who live in this neighborhood who appreciate what we just want to say thank you. This is the least we can do. And person after person came up to us with tears in their eyes, and just saying, thank you so much. But thank you. I, I feel energized, I feel losed by this. And that's the power of these kind of moments, of creating space at our tables, of using the power of the table to remind people that they're loved, that they matter, and that they're included. Early in, in my sort of like ministry. Uh, career. Uh, I was a young adult minister, and there was a, a young guy who showed up who was in bad shape, um, had several addictions, um, one day showed up, and had, had been beaten up, and was just in really rough shape. We had gotten to know him over the course of a couple months, and it was uh, right on, it was right after Good Friday, so this is Holy Saturday, and we heard the news that this person had been kicked out um, of of like their friend circle that was that was basically all they had to hold on to at the time they had left their home and uh, and they just had nobody and they were feeling suicidal and so my wife and I were just like just come share Easter Easter lunch with us and uh, we invited him over and uh, he shared with like a giant black eye that our two toddlers were like what's wrong with your face <laughs> we're like that's not a nice thing to say. Um, but we had this beautiful, beautiful lunch. Um, and it extended on into the evening with like, rich conversation and celebration. And we had a really profound connection at this simple meal. And it, I you know, went on with life and never thought really much of it after that. Um, he had moved away and you know, we went our separate ways. And then a few years after moving here, I went to a, a retreat in Connecticut. The facilitator of the retreat was uh, amazing and kept uh, telling these stories uh, of, of her son. And uh, she would use the first name, but then I, I knew her last name, and it triggered all of a sudden like, that's the same name of the kid we invited into our home at Easter so many years ago. And so during a break, I, I pulled her aside and I said, Hey, is your son blank? And her face just went almost white. And she said, Yes, why? And I told her the story of our encounter many years prior uh, with him. And she just started weeping. And she said, you have no idea how much we prayed for him. And, and we're just lost on how to handle what was going on. And it was like he was beyond our reach, no matter what we did. And to know that like there were people in his life who were welcoming him at the table and including him and speaking life into him. She's like, that's just so precious to me. What a gift. That you guys were, and uh, and she told me stories of like how we would gotten therapy and I had experienced some healing and was just like on a, in a really healthy place. And I don't say that because I'm a hero. In fact, this week I thought of all the ways that I, I'm like not doing this very well right now in my life. And I, I wonder what this provokes in you as a teacher when you reflect on your own life and the tables that you create and the tables you attend, um, are you bringing that sense of who's at this table? Are you able to see the dynamics at work to detach from them It's sort of like relativize it, just be like, you know, I, I'm here, but I'm not really into the game, you know? I, I'm not addicted to this game. And are you seeking out spaces and places and tables where you can drag in people who are different, who maybe transgress your instincts, if you do that, then you're leaning into the new way of being human that is good news for our world that Jesus called the gospel of the kingdom of God. When you can do that, you encounter the mystery of the universe, which is that God is love. And the only thing that matters is that God is love. And that we were meant to enjoy and express and do that love. And that's when we come to this table. This table was a replacement ritual. Like in the face of how religions and communities have always built peace and built unity around some blood sacrifice. Something had to be sacrificed in order to come together. And Jesus said, no more, no more. I'll become the victim, I'll become the outsider, I'll become the sacrifice willingly to show you that this is not the way forward. We don't need to keep sacrificing each other or the scapegoat, or the group, or the animal, in order to be bound together and define one another. We can come to this table and remember love at the center, a body broken and blood poured out in love, to remind us that this unconditional love is the center of our lives, at the center of our being. And it can be at the center of our tables, forcing us to reimagine all our social relationships, all of our careers, all of our life plans and purposes. This table, is a weekly prompt in your imagination to come back to that transgressive love. The love that transgressed all the boundaries to get to you, and it forces you, it inspires you to transgress boundaries to get to your neighbor. That's what this one is all about. So as we come to this table, let's ask God for new power, new courage, new vision, to see our lives afresh, to see possibilities. Let's ask God's spirit, to guide our imaginations, to guide what we see, to, to give us the eye for the outsider, the eye for the person who feels lost or unseen or on the outside, and do something about it. Put it in action. Do something positive with it. Don't just detach. And don't be blindly addicted. So let's hold this invitation in front of us as we come to this table. invite you to stand with me as we pray. overlap with the ages. Help us from just falling in or folding into the cynicism that just says, man, this world's messed up. It's really unjust and uh, I might as well just get mine in the midst of it. Help us to keep the open heart to see a new world as possible, a new way of being human, to lean into it, to nourish it, to let it grow within us as we practice the way of Jesus here. in the midst of it all, we ask that we would be transformed by your love. That we'd somehow reconnect with that mystery of the gospel that we are unconditionally loved by God as we are. And that we'd be changed by that love. Guide us and lead us as we come to this table.